Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Abe and I just closed our January issue, uh, which is chock full of fantastic stuff. We'll be releasing uh, most of it uh, over the course of this week at commentarymagazine.com, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe tomorrow on the podcast. We will have Eli Lake, author of the cover piece, which is called Framed and Guilty, The Last Word on Trump and Russia. Um, Christine has a really great piece about the uh, about Margaret Sullivan, the self-appointed uh, media critic columnist of the Washington Post and her role as leader, self-appointed role as leader of the resistance against Trump, Um, a lot of other important stuff. So please go to commentarymagazine.com and subscribe uh, because you'll want to read many of our items and you can only read a few before you hit the dreaded paywall. Uh, last night, uh, after the Electoral College had, uh, state by state, had assigned its electors in sufficient numbers to Joe Biden to elect him president of the United States, so that, that uh, in January, the, the, those tallies have to be formally accepted by the House and Senate for the, for the final, ultimate final, final, final declaration that Biden is the president-elect and that only only death can stop him before the 20th of January. So uh, Joe Biden uh, gave a talk, a speech uh, at about 7 p.m. last night. Um, and uh, it was, I thought, good. That is to say that he said we, uh, the president has had, had every opportunity to contest and use the fair legal processes of the United States to address concerns or raise questions about the election, and in every case, he has failed to convince state electors, judges, Republican judges, conservative judges, and that, um, and that any, any claim somehow that, uh, that he has not uh, been fairly treated since the election is unjust and unjustified, and that, uh, and that now he can openly come out and not only after the Electoral College, but after all of this process, and say enough is enough, enough is enough, enough is enough. Good speech. Uh, it was hampered by a couple of presentation factors, one of which is this decision that they have made not to just start these speeches with him sitting at a desk or standing at a podium, but to have him walk out from behind a stage in this empty room where there are, you know, reporters like 70 feet back. Uh, and it's weird. Like, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's belittling rather than elevating. He should be sitting at a desk or standing at the podium when the camera goes on. Uh, instead, they have this kind of weird um, choreography where an aide walks out with a mask and puts a notebook down on the podium and then walks away and then Biden comes out, he delivers the speech, he closes the notebook, he picks it up, and then Jill, Dr. Jill, is standing 10 feet away, and he sort of walks over to her, he's still hobbling because of his foot injury, and she kind of 
hugs him, and then they walk off off stage. This is not, this is, it's bizarre. I don't know why they do it this way. And I don't mean to like do this as like a theater review, but of course, much of the pomp and circumstance of, of, of leadership is theater. And I don't think they're doing this right. Like they are, this does not make you think, oh, great, the page is turning and everything is, you know, we're in good hands with somebody new. Forget ideology. It's awkward. It's, it's weird to watch. The tone is off. And that's number one. And number two was that he had had like a frog in his throat throughout much of the speech. And he was clearing his throat and stumbling over some words. Uh, at one set, the first time he said the Electoral College has certified our results and things like that. And, you know, again, in terms of like choreography staging the the kind of uh, implicit effects of these kinds of presentations you know you're like watching it and a friend of mine like you know texted me and said it feels like he's getting the virus in real time like i can't watch it's this is making me it's nerve-wracking um so you know uh, a moment that was sort of intended to be uh both triumphal and like biden saying okay cut the crap already I'm the leader, and you know, from the, the, this point forward, if you follow along this other path, you're embarrassing yourself. It didn't quite come off that way. You know what? Uh, not, please, just, but just something that strikes me. I just realized now is that all this elevation of uh, Jill, Doctor Jill, um, seems to me um, at least um, partly wittingly modeled on the popularity of Michelle Obama. Um, right to it's the, the idea that people like or love to have um, a first lady celebrity um, cultural figure. Um, they like this idea of this um, presidential couple in the culture um, that uh, they can um, look up to and get involved with and, and sort of, you know, rave about. But it's all a facsimile of that. It's you know, completely it's, it's an attempt to manufacture that. And it's, it's not a good fit. Like they're, trying right. Michelle Obama commanded the stage. She didn't need to be handed a microphone. She took it. Um, Jill Biden, they're trying to image manufacture Jill Biden. Like they're trying to image manufacture Kamala Harris. And it's just not a great fit. Um, but I, you know, I don't know if it'd be such a bad thing. I, don't, I surely don't think this is witting on their parts, but I don't think it would be such a bad thing for American political culture to have a president who is perceived to be small and frail. We haven't had that in a long time. We've had these commanding figures who bestride the political culture and are ubiquitous, not just in politics, but in just about every other aspect of uh, daily life. And Joe Biden sort of is precarious and yeah, but and then that, that porcelain makes... figure who's also you know when, swallowed, when... swallowed by this grand stage on which he which he's on, which is a fantastic metaphor. Okay, and and let me just ask you, like what? What political figure in world history can you think of who was look who came across as frail and weak? I mean, like that she's Mrs. Wilson, and he's like you know post stroke <laughs> wonder yeah. poet. I mean, there's a. I actually every time I see him, but no one knew. Stage, no one knew friend. about Mrs. Wilson. Well, right, but the, no one in America knew that Woodrow Wilson was infirm and that his wife was right. acting as president of the United States, which came out later and is why we have the Twenty Fifth Amendment. But yeah, FDR the, was an open secret, and Kennedy was an open secret. People did there, not. No, no. Kennedy was certainly Kennedy was not an open secret. Kennedy was a closed secret, 
And in part because his injury was war-related, you were certainly weren't supposed to throw it in his face. And nobody knew how sick FDR was. After the 40s, I think they did. They did not. They did not. There was no daily television brought. Like, the only time anyone saw these people was in newsreels. I mean, in, in Roosevelt's case. And, it, you know, his, his infirmity after the 44 election was not well known. But is it one of the challenges that the Biden administration has following Trump? And that you see this actually with some of the staging they've done since the election. He has these, you know, eagles and this office of the president-elect symbol. There's no such thing as an office of the president-elect. He's just the president-elect. But they're trying to kind of uh, institutionalize something to, I guess, to be reassuring and to kind of give people this image of power and commanding power. I actually find that very off-putting. But he has well, to be careful. Well, Trump and Trump, Trump had the office of the president-elect. Right. No, they both. I, but I'm saying. Trump, Trump's turned uh, the symbols that we usually assume are patriotic and non-controversial, like the eagle and the flag, have become, during his term, thanks in large part to the media's relentless attacks on him, into something sinister, right? So there, there's a way in which it's going to be tough for Biden to do some of the typical stagecraft uh, that appeals to his base without the base being triggered, you know, like, oh, my God, he's going to America first us again. I mean, there's a funny, <laughs> there's a strange reaction to a lot of these previously patriotically unproblematic symbols, I think. Well, so, you know, not to sort of dance around the dance around the central uh, topic, but if, if Joe Biden, Joe Biden was chosen by um, uh, electors over 270 in number to be president of the United States yesterday, he is now president. We knew he was president the day after the election we know he is president today. How much more of this nonsense are we going to have to face just because uh, Trump has a game plan that involves continuing to complain about this so he can raise money or keep his options open for 2024 and other Republican politicians don't want to cross him because he'll yell at them or he'll he'll encourage uh, he'll encourage primary challenges to himself or something like that, like uh, the gracelessness of this is, is now, and I, I'm not even getting into what the threats to democracy and all of that, because in fact, I don't see any threat to democracy. Everything has gone fine. The threat to democracy may come from the fact that, you know, somebody, it's not a threat to democracy that, uh, you know, Republicans believe untruths, like, or, or that a leader promulgates untruths. That's not a threat to democracy is when our systems and the processes by which things happen according to institutional norm prerogatives uh, are interrupted or screwed around with. And that didn't happen. It didn't happen 40 times in the courts. It didn't happen with the state uh, legislatures. In fact, this would seem to suggest the genius in the system uh, remains very firm and that any effort to maybe you shouldn't even try to screw around that. I agree with that. But um but I, I almost feel like uh, people are right of center are being told, ah, let it, you know, whatever, whatever. You know, we should all be grateful to him because of the judges and because of uh, the Abraham Accords and, and he broke norms and he spoke truth and he did this and he did that. And, I, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm out of, I'm out of pay. I, not that I had much patience, but I'm really out of patience now. So, um, 
can someone demonstrate again noah you've always been ameliorist in this regard it's like yeah don't worry about it it'll all be fine how are you you're, no you're 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 making a face at me like i'm i'm mischaracterizing you well i think we need to have gradients here as i said in the last podcast the media culture is uh, particularly addicted to worst case scenarios to the exclusion of likelier outcomes that are more positive. And I don't think that's an insane position to take. And it's perhaps it's meliorist insofar as human effort can advance the, the, the human condition uh, by de- the textbook definition thereof. Sure. But yeah, it's, I suspect that this is going to be the fiction that a lot of people are going to hold to right up until the moment that the actual contest to replace, to, to lead the Republican party again begins in earnest, at which point people are going to have to strike out against it. And the president himself is only somewhat interested in this game. He talks about it a lot. He talks up, he pretends he won elected Republicans who assume they're beholden to Trump's voters believe, make believe along with him. And the press followed, you know, dances to his tune too, by focusing on everybody and anybody who, who, you know, it d- departs from the party posture, which has the effect, practical effect of keeping him in the news, which is just good for Trump. But what Trump really cares about is the news. Axios has this piece today, which is actually pretty interesting, talking about how the president is finally coming around and acknowledging reality. But his, his enemies lists, you know, the top of the enemies list is Fox News. It's anchors like Chris Wallace and Brett Baer uh, and uh, somebody else who have... Uh, yeah, um, on-air personalities, as opposed, you know, he, he mentions in passing Republican governors who presided over his loss in places like Arizona and Georgia. But his real passion has always been in entertainment. And that's where he wants to be. So, you know, will he persist in his political career? Yeah, probably. But also, he'll take a probably a big detour into the press. And that makes it much easier for the political culture to move on. Well, as you've said... Political culture may not want to move on. I mean, you have this interesting phenomenon, which is that the walking around for a month talking about the threat to democracy uh, is like uh, liberal cable channels uh, trying to maintain their uh, ratings uh, in in the outrage uh, sphere while he is departing the stage. The press doesn't want to move on, but the press is entertainment. And that's where, you know, that's where the battlefield is. That's where he wants to contest this thing. And they want to contest it, too. Everybody wants to get in the mud. And it, but it's all a ratings game. And the political culture can escape that gravity well if they want. I mean, the interesting thing, based on your weak, your, your whole thing about Biden being weak and infirm and it being an interesting new model, I mean, um, uh, you had, you know, Jesus in the form of, you know, God in the form of Obama. And then you have this, you know, I don't know what you would call him. This kind of like, you know, uh, for the for the Democrats, Loki and for the Republicans, Hector figure, you know, uh, in, in Trump. And now you're going to have this uh, relatively unassuming old man without much of an agenda being president uh, the withdrawal symptoms of the American body politic from having a, you know, having a, a, a an orb to revolve around going to be very, it's, you know, that's what's new. Uh, but what, there, what, yeah. So the, that withdrawal means we, uh, the, we will find a methadone replacement, 
right? Uh, it, it it may not be Biden. It won't be Biden, but there. But it will be you know, it will be Trump for as long as we can keep it Trump, um, because uh, because we are addicted to um, the, the outrage around well, him, and, and it'll be and it'll be other figures, you know. Well, it'll be, I mean, we got perhaps the early taste of what we might get or what the strat- one strategy they're testing out is a return to kind of insane identity politics so that everything is racist or sexist. So the Dr. Jill kerfuffle was a test of Perfect. that, new, right? You know, that's it's like, oh, my God, everything that anyone does to criticize this administration is so illegitimate that we have to pounce on it, as they love to say about the conservatives. When, when was the departure from that model? Pardon? What? I'm sorry. When, when was the departure from that model? Well, there wasn't entirely, but I think that the that Trump drew so much of the energy out of the room that it, it it's been on a low simmer, and they're going to bring it back to a boil until they have a clear villain because they've been trying with McConnell. He doesn't quite work, and he just doesn't have the compelling. He doesn't react the way they need a villain to react. They don't really have a good villain on the right right now. Well, it could be like Batman, the old Batman TV show, where they literally said villain of the week. You know, it literally said you know. Villain of the week, Cesar Romero as the Joker. Villain of the week, Frank Gorshin as the Riddler. I mean, yeah. In the absence of a, in the I want a penguin. The, yeah, the penguin. Right. In the absence of a of a Trump being the villain, yeah, you could have you have uh, you have Joseph Epstein one day. You have you know, as I keep saying, a state senator from Idaho who says something racist. The next day, you have some college kid saying something on a college campus. But it, it's not the same. It really isn't the same to have a, a the focus on the leader of the of the free world or the leader of the United States in that way. Um, I just don't know how uh, you you replace that and and the normalcy. It's not normal. That's what's interesting is if we're moving into a period in which uh, in which the president is not an inspiring or driving or controversial figure around you know we, we're talking about 20 20 years now or excuse me 28 years now if you start with clinton clinton bush obama trump 28 years of highly and you could even go back to reagan if you wanted though it was a little different um and then you get biden like it's not normal i mean the normal is to have everything revolve around the president What's not normal is for the president to to resist, not personally resist, but to somehow be a retardant of that effort. People are going to try to do this to Biden, I assume. Like, I assume that Fox News is going to try to, you know, turn Biden into a into a villain. He's just not. It's not going to stick to him somehow. I, I mean, I don't know how it sticks to him because he's too. What? I, I mean, you know. Well, there's two ways. You're right that it won't stick to him the same way the socialism charge didn't stick to him during the election. But there, there's one way in which they could get a lot of fodder and, and airtime and ratings out of Biden. And that's any hint or whiff of corruption in his family. And he's coming in with some certainly serious questions being raised about both his uh, his brother and his son. Um, now, a lot that's going to be blown epically out of proportion, but that's exactly what they did with Trump on the other side. So th- there's corruption could be one way into that. And he could still be the bumbling, gentle old man. But if he's surrounded by corrupt people, then he begins to that weakness becomes a little more evident, I think. So I don't know what that what that tells us exactly, except that we're uh, 
wildly speculate. We're, we're, no, I, I just, I just, um, I just feel like I, I don't understand what the order of battle is going to be in a country that is this, um, you know, evenly split. You know, we have, we have a, we have a. Uh, Biden wins the presidency by seven million votes. That that seven million vote margin comes largely from California and New York, if not exclusively, you know, totally nationally. So basically, the entire country is sort of even level, right? We have the we have the House almost split evenly. We have the Senate, which will basically be split evenly, even if it isn't quite perfectly split evenly once the Georgia recounts are open over. So what we have here is a kind of stasis, and the but the weird part of it is that we've never had a more harsh partisan divide while we have the country evenly divided. In some sense, you would figure that under these circumstances, this is where you say, well, half the country is liberals, half the country is conservatives. Maybe they can get together and figure out where they agree and where they disagree because nobody has the whip hand. There's no Obama to say, hey, Harry, you know, hey, I won. Right. And he said that the first week of the election when he met with Paul Ryan, he's like, I won cow bend to me, cow to cleave to me, kowtow to me. I mean, Biden wouldn't do that, but he couldn't do that because, yeah, he won, but he won by four points. He won because of New York and California and the House and Senate are totally divided uh, pretty evenly. And so there is no dominating political view in the United States. There's no dominating political view in the United States. That's the weird part about this is. So that isn't Joe Biden the perfect figure to preside over that? Probably. I mean, he's the perfect figure because he's the figure. It's and so almost far like as we have any, you know, viable candidates. I'm sure there are more you could envision a more perfect, you know, avatar of that moment, but insofar no, as he doesn't right. he doesn't provoke, doesn't, you know, create any strong feelings one way or the other from anybody for the most part. But that's my question. Can you manufacture, you know, I think that, you know, part of the thing that, that liberals were so horrified by the response to Obama on the part of, of conservatives was that they, they didn't have the capacity to understand that the extent of the presumption that Obama brought to the presidency, that he was a transformative figure who was going to essentially bring back the New Deal, reorient the American relationship between government and the, and the citizenry that had been shifting away from the centrality of government as established by Roosevelt in the New Deal for the previous seven decades. And that he was basically restoring it because he won, you know, he won a big landslide, though it wasn't that big a landslide, as we keep saying, like it was it was nowhere near Reagan's landslide or Johnson's landslide or Nixon's landslide. Um, and he won. And so he basically, you know, does uh, a national health care system and a trillion dollar stimulus and partially nationalizes the auto industry and the right goes, oh, my God, what on earth is going on here? And the left, who's totally fine with it, says, you can only believe this because you're a racist. It's like, no, it's got nothing to do with race. This is a whole, this is like, you know, uh, you think dog whistling about race is the reason that the Tea Party rose? The Tea Party rose because because of the circumstances surrounding Obama's expansion of the size of government in the, in the wake of the great recession. Um, and so, you know, that was not manufactured, nor was the rage against Trump manufactured. 
Trump was a controversialist who leaned into his controversialism, said things that you weren't supposed to say and all of that. So none of it was manufactured. So to hate Biden, you're going to have to manufacture hatred for Biden. You know, something that's, I think, healthy about, um, potentially healthy about uh, the Biden, having a Biden presidency and um, is that um, he is so disconnected from the culture uh, as opposed to the past two presidents. You know, Obama was at the center of the culture. You know, he was slow jamming the news and people asking him about it, what was on his, you know, playlist. Trump was a TV star. Um, oh, Biden. Uh, oh, Biden. Biden. <laughs> Biden is, you know, sort of Biden comes straight out of a different era. He's not connected to these things. And I think that's healthy um, because the um, collapse of uh, politics and culture, the the blending um, has gotten um, entirely out of control um, and um, sort of Americans are making have been making a mistake in their lives about the role of politics because of this and the role of culture because of this. Um, and I, hopefully there's a little b- breathing room between the two um, b- because Biden is not this cultural figure. Yeah, but. He's also disconnected from the central animating ethos of his own party at this point. And I've been kind of nursing a theory that as uh, Democrats um, move away from self-identifying as liberals, classical or otherwise, um, and more towards progressives, they're beginning to adopt progressivism's habits of mind, which are in essence puritanical. Um, which have roots uh, going dating back to the founding of the country and the puritanical ideal, which is a collectivist vision, um, which is an activist vision, and which is one that uh, does cannot abide behaviors with which it disagrees that do not advance the central project, which was for them the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, and for progressives today, a more perfect ideal of the human condition. And Joe Biden does not share that vision. Um, but just about most of the activists in his party certainly do. And um, to the extent that he's not, he's, he doesn't command that conversation. He could also just be left out of it, which isn't to say he'll be having any influence whatsoever over the political evolution of his, much less his party, but certainly the country too. Right. Well, it's, as I say, we're, we're actually, this is the one area in which Biden is unprecedented. I mean, maybe he's unprecedented because of his age. But he's unprecedented because he is not a he is not a he does not bid fair to become a kind of galvanizing cultural po- politico cultural figure. I mean, I mean, you you can't know that he won't be. Things can happen, you know. A nine eleven can happen that transforms somebody's presidency or transforms what what his own even his own sense of what his own presidency is going to be like because of the need to respond to, you know, to, to remarkable circumstances. But, you know, a 78-year-old man is not exactly the sort of person who has a transformative experience that alters the way that the world views him, right? I mean, that's just, it, maybe it can happen. It just doesn't seem all that likely. And so we are heading into, all I'm saying is we're heading into uncharted waters with Biden in a weird way, just like we were heading into uncharted waters with Trump. 
because he is such a radical, uh, he, he represents such radical discontinuity with what we have come to expect from our president. So let me um, uh, talk to you now about our first sponsor today, Headspace. Because uh, as you know, life stressful, even under normal circumstances, has taken a turn into stresses that we couldn't have imagined in 2020. And as we move into 2021, we find ourselves under other forms of stress, political stress, even the kind of anticipation of when we might or might not get the vaccine stress. And so you need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes, and that's Headspace, your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations and an easy-to-use app, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed, Headspace is a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions their members swear by, and for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads, Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash commentary. That's headspace.com slash commentary for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash commentary today. Um, we read uh, about the, uh, unpre- again, unprecedented hack into uh, government agencies, commerce, uh, Homeland Security, uh, the State Department using, um, once again, uh, it appears using an, uh, a method where uh, an update is sent to clients of the software piece, and the software piece owned by a private contractor itself was hacked. So it wasn't that they got someone to click on something like with John Podesta and then get, get got his email address the the software was hacked when people went to update it this gave it appears russian intelligence access uh in all these departments and if you read deeply into the stories uh it may be only that 10 or 12 people who clicked on this out of 300,000 people who got the got the original email saying you need to update your 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 uh software program uh of any moment were hacked, but that that was more than enough. They have no idea how bad the hack is. They have no idea what was penetrated. They have no idea what the Russians now know. And they don't necessarily know how to stop them from knowing it once now that it has been discovered. So uh, this is uh, apparently the most successful software breach that we know about, anyway, that we know about. And it uh, it is eight or nine months old. So, uh, Noah, you are our resident Russian politics graduate student. (laughs) What? You have a graduate degree in Russian studies. 
I do not. Okay, I have I'm an sorry. Undergraduate degree in Russian studies. I'm sorry, you have an and I I actually had it. I, I said, a, okay. I'm sorry. I have a graduate degree in yeah. international relations. Okay, so let's on security policy in the post-Soviet space, sir. Please, I'm don't pretty, undermine. I, I'm my, sorry. I'm not call Master level. Noah now. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm pretty. Yeah, I'm that's pretty right. Yeah. Doctor, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Doctor of Doctor of Masters. <laughs> Um, okay, so you have a master's degree in international relations. You have a, an undergraduate degree in, in Soviet studies. Uh, you, who knew that this was actually going to be of use to you? Oh, this I've been saying this for. Yeah, I know. For, well, congratulations. Since, literally, since the, you know, the little green men started paratrooping into uh, Sevastopol, wherever they were, I was like, yes, this is my time. This yeah. is my moment. Okay, so so please <laughs> deploy deploy your academic experience for us. I have no idea. I can't tell you anything, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> so we had this, as you described, this hack targeting the Department of Homeland Security, the State Department, the National Institutes of Health, now pinned to um, Moscow, or at least Moscow's uh, arms and proxies. And at the same time, today, yesterday, essentially, we got this revelation from an investigation conducted in part by Bellingcat which is a uh, security analysis uh, media outlet and linking pretty conclusively as if you needed any convincing, um, you know, proof to demonstrate it. But if you did, they have it um, linking FSB agents, um, which is a domestic security uh, arm in Russia to the uh, attempted murder through poisoning of Alexei Navalny, who's a prominent opposition figure in Russia. Um, and so it, it turns out to be a, a pretty bad day for Vladimir Putin if you're focused on that sort of thing. And unless you're focused on domestic politics, if you're focused on domestic politics, the message today is that even Vladimir Putin has acknowledged the election, has acknowledged Joe Biden as the president elect. This is a universal across the political press from NPR to CNN to well, LA Times, USA Today. The line is even Vladimir Putin has acknowledged this election more so faster than most Republicans have, which is a de the design here is to give Republicans bad press. But in so far as that's your objective, you're also kind of giving Putin a little bit of good press, right? Because yeah. he's farsighted enough to understand this. And very few people, with the exception of uh, who I've seen uh, in mainstream media, with the exception of Brianna Goldraga, who I think is CNN, noted that this is probably just a way to shift the story. Because otherwise, right? Because otherwise, this would be a very bad news cycle for the Kremlin in the West. Uh, and insofar as Vladimir Putin knows how to play these, play the press, just like Donald Trump knows how to play the press, they're all so easily manipulated. They're all so easily drawn off the trail, and only in order to land a fleeting, glancing blow on their political opponents that no one will recall, but which advances the geopolitical interests of an American adversary in the process. Okay. So let me, let me, let me float this cause I'm floating it, but I noticed that actually the New York times coverage did not float it. So I'm, I'm, I'm now getting to the left of the New York times on, 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 on Trump and Russia. Uh, it, it was said during the, Trump presidency that because he was so, and I think justifiably outraged by this notion that he was a Russian agent, that if you brought up 
Russian hacking and you brought up Russian, you know, efforts to interfere with the election or you did this or you did that, it got him angry because all it did was set him off and say, it's the hoax, they're investigating the hoax, the Russia hoax, the Russia hoax. And and over time in a in a political in a politically charged atmosphere like the Trump administration, the idea that you are supposed to, you know, the, the idea that uh, you are making a mistake by focusing on something that the principal really hates to hear about, particularly in an area um, as presidentially centered as serious uh, intelligence uh, interventions in the, you know, uh, that stuff has to get up to the presidential level if you're going to do certain types of very serious things. And if the idea is we can't even talk about this with him because he just goes totally ballistic and can't, you know, can't contain himself. And he thinks that you're a part of the deep state if you bring up, you know, Putin's misbehavior or something like that. I can see how, uh, even though this guy, Christopher Krebs, who was head of cybersecurity at Homeland Security, who, you know, was focused on making sure that the Russians did not somehow hack into the election machines, that, you know, there's only so much focus you can give to this while you are terrified that your boss is going to have a temper tantrum because you're focusing on it. So I don't know the degree to which the Russians saw an opportunity because Trump was so hostile to the notion that he that he needed to act against Russian interference in American domestic affairs. Anybody want to share my feelings here? Because as I say, I thought this was where the New York Times piece on this was going, and it didn't. Uh, but that's where my mind went. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I assume the Kremlin is um, sort of just um, consistently looking for uh, chinks in the armor, and and um, always uh, is working toward things like hacking. Um, the uh, the U.S. and other countries. So I I don't know that 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 Trump's um, discomfort with any of these issues necessarily played a role. But but it, it turns out that it was a private company that alerted the U.S. government to the hack, which should be very unnerving to people. It was not the U.S. government that determined that it had been hacked, but a private company said, you know, this update you did to the Yadada software, it looks like it was compromised. The update itself was compromised. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, so, so, uh, so you think that the Kremlin is up to no good and it should constantly be watched. And that may not be the case with the people who are supposed to be watching them is what I'm saying. And then the question is, why not? That's where I come to this idea that Trump's own anger about being accused of being a, a, a Russian agent somehow impeded the proper working order of the American government in this respect. Well, and there's, I mean, we we know that the the media in particular doesn't often report on preventive things, right? So if you prevent a disaster, you're not, you rarely get a story about the prevention of a disaster. You get the story about the disaster when it happens. And so there, you could see that even, I mean, this has been uh, one thing that's been 
notable about the Trump administration is the massive number of leaks, you know, from from various agencies. You would think that if there was even a, a whiff of of this, I mean, this has been the era of the whistleblower as martyr, right? I mean, you would think that there would have been some leak or some whistleblower type who would have stepped up and said, you know, we're not being allowed to prevent hacking or something because of his, you know, relationship with Putin. Um, but I do think that there's been, because the focus was so much on this, you know, Russiagate conspiracy by the media, they probably missed opportunities to look into what are in fact structural weaknesses in our intelligence uh, systems that have long been there that predate Trump and, and that will continue to uh, bedevil us as our, as our, enemies attempt to infiltrate our system. So it's one of those stories that actually a good press should constantly be looking at and that a good investigative reporter spends months and, you know, even years compiling evidence of. You can easily see that being much less sexy a story than, you know, he's a Russian agent. You know, it's a classic thing about government. It's an interesting because, you know, on the one hand, we have these hack stories that are really almost comic in 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 private industry like uh, the sony hack where north korea basically got all the emails uh, uh from the uh, sony system because it was mad because seth rogan had made this movie making fun of uh kim jong-un and uh and you know that released these emails about how the head of sony had belittled angelina jolie's salary demands and she had to quit and all of that so it's like, wow, these multi-billion-dollar companies have no security. Like they could just someone could just some, you know, two-bit, you know, tin pot totalitarian tyranny can sort of figure out how to steal their emails. Like who can't? You know, this is kind of embarrassing. You kind of have a higher set of expectations for the federal government in dealing with you know, determined adversary intelligence agencies. Like Sony had no reason to think that North Koreans were going to steal their emails. But as Abe was saying, we have every reason to think every moment of every day that the Chinese and the... And and, and by the way, vice versa. Like we want, we certainly would want to think that we have ears on what's going on inside the Kremlin, for example, if we can find out what they're emailing to each other, right? Like, one of our complaints, uh, one of serious complaints about our, our 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 statecraft now, is that our intelligence isn't that good. But we sort of figure in, in our vanity that since we're the you know leading edge of uh, computer technology and and cyberspace and all that, that that at least we should be good at that, right? We're not good at human intelligence, but we should at least be good at that. But I mean, the thing about these these hack stories, and they've been going on for years and years now, is that. It's like uh, it's almost like the weather now. It seems like it's unstoppable. You know, you can't and you know, sort of before the big story started happening, um, there were all these sort of pieces warning about because we are in this new age, <clears throat> we're going to have to uh, ramp up cybersecurity. We're going to have to figure out ways to to protect ourselves. And sort of none of that was really heated, um, heated and. Um, so it just kind of all happened, and it continues to happen. Um, and it's 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 almost like uh, it's like the price of doing business now. That that's how we look at it. We don't. There's not a. There's not a. I mean, of course, there are people working at it trying to stop it, but there's no concerted, you know, collective shift into this age of um, 
beefed up cybersecurity for the for the U.S. I'm not sure I agree with that because I think that Amazon and Google and some of the like they are must be absolutely panicked about it and devote enormous resources to it because of course if they really get compromised if every credit card uh, in the Amazon system uh, if every credit card number is stolen. Uh, in Amazon, like that's where you start getting into the, well, now we can't shop through Amazon anymore. Like we can't, you know, they have to, they, their entire wellspring of being, and you know, they're, these are fantastically profitable co- uh, companies so they can devote enormous resources to it. And I think we all feel totally secure in throwing money through their system and all of that, because somehow we understand the threat that that there is to to their livelihoods in not taking this seriously. The question is, why isn't that the U.S. government? Like, why do I have to change my password every month? But you know, we, and then I forget my password because I, you know these systems are always saying, "Ah, it's time to change your password. You got to change your." But then I can't remember which of the ninety-two passwords I've had in the last five years I used again. Um. But, you know, the U.S. government is, like, still using fax machines or something. Yeah, but we also, the U.S. government also outsources a lot of its cloud, you know, uses the the private sector's cloud uh, capacity and systems. And that's an increasing challenge. And they're they're doing these these uh, public-private partnerships at a rapid pace. And the only time they tend to break through into mainstream news is when, for example, they involve uh, artificial intelligence and the Defense Department and Google employees get really annoyed and, you know, kind of publicly denounce the fact that their company is working with with the Pentagon. So, but actually the the storage and um, computing capacity, there's tons of stuff going on there. We They use them as a, the government uses Google and Amazon, these other services as private contractors all the time. So, I mean, and the one sense that that might alleviate your concern on the other hand i think there are there are some risks to that as well right okay so let me uh speaking of internet commerce uh and uh let's talk a little bit about our second client today uh mac weldon the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and high quality fabrics mac weldon offers a one-stop shop for men's basics Socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts, whatever you need. Mack Weldon has you covered. Unlike the assortment of department store brands that make up your top drawer, all of Mack Weldon's basics have a consistent fit that you can count on from socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts. Mack Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit because you're not just going to look great in Mack Weldon. Their underwear, socks, and shorts perform well, too, for working out, going out, going to work, or out on a date. Mack Weldon is for everyday life with its wide range of customized fabrics that can keep up with you no matter what your day looks like. And Mack Weldon has created a totally free loyalty program. Level 1 gets you free shipping for life. Once you reach Level 2 by spending $200, Mack Weldon gives you 20% off every order for the next year. Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep them. And they'll still refund you, no questions asked. That's MacWeldon.com, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. So uh, with uh, 30, yeah, 35 days, 36 days to the uh, swearing in of Joe Biden, uh, Attorney General William Barr resigned last night or was pushed or was fired or left. He's leaving 
It looked like he was being fired, uh, but then he wrote a resignation letter um, that I would describe. I'm I'm a I'm an admirer of uh, of Bill Barr's, but I would describe this letter as being only marginally less obsequious than Machiavelli's letter to uh, to Lorenzo uh, at the beginning of the of the prince um, in its uh, only in in its oleaginousness I mean uh, you, you would Donald Trump has done everything to save everybody from any ill that has ever happened and he is the most wonderful person on earth so I I, I doesn't look to me like he was fired on the other hand who knows Um what we do know is what, how, whatever the tone of the letter took, uh, he has been one of the most uh, disgustingly maligned people uh, in recent American political history because he clearly has done, I believe, at every turn what he believed was his constitutional obligation and uh, was trying to follow uh according to the dictates that the uh, that his office uh, handled and be, just because liberals wanted Donald Trump to be impeached and removed from office his refusal to play along with their game uh made him uh a, a target and a villain and and someone who was considered you know evil but that that's after he's was maligned for years by the other side as being a sort of henchman or even a mastermind no, that's what I was referring to. I'm sorry, I was referring to the liberal attacks oh, on him. Oh, yeah. uh, but you should get to the conservative. Maybe maybe you should talk about the conservative attacks on him in the last like six days or whatever. Well, yeah, um, in, including by the president um, yeah. for for not leaking that there was an invest that there is in fact an investigation into Hunter Biden uh, during the, the the time while the election was going on. Um, that's uh, it's crazy. I mean, uh, that's 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 not his job. That would be uh, a violation of his responsibilities. Um, so he, he once again, as he's done every step of the way, Barr, including, you know, um, in less of official capacity when he came out and said uh, on TV that he wished the, the president would stop tweeting the way he does. It makes his job harder as he's done every step of the way. Uh, uh, Barr has. Um, sort of um, followed his conscience and and uh, his sense of professional responsibility. I mean, you I, can, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I feel like it, as he's leaving office, he still, he deserves yet another shout out for his performance over the summer when he testified before Congress about all the unrest going on in cities and, and what he, what he felt the responsibility of the federal government was in protecting federal buildings and, and property. And that was a kind of virtuoso performance for which he was thoroughly excoriated in the mainstream media. But that actually gave me a glimmer of hope that there was someone in the Trump administration who was doing more than just anger tweeting about it. Um, and who was sort of methodically thinking through uh, with an understanding of the limits of what the federal government could do, actually, in these cases um, and and did that. Like he, he did send people, he did send federal officers to go protect federal buildings and courthouses, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. I think that that's part of his legacy that we should uh, recall fondly because he actually behaved appropriately in a moment of great civil unrest and tension. I mean, I think what strikes me as really interesting in this moment is that the Trump administration has largely ceased to exist. Uh, I mean, it exists in nominally, but there is no political direction at the Pentagon. There's no political direction at the Department of Justice. The president himself 
seems to exist only as this astrophysical jet to project paranoia all over the political spectrum and lick his own wounds. You now have Republicans actively frustrated over the fact that he's lobbying for and raising money around the Georgia runoffs, all of which are going to his own campaign funds to retire debt from the 2020 cycle. And the question, I mean, first of all, it's pretty nice that the country has can run entropically without an active presidential administration or an executive branch that seems to be functioning on anything other than inertia. That's nice. Um, the question is, when do Republicans realize they have reached the point of diminishing returns with this guy? Well, he's actively waging a war on the party's infrastructure. You know, what's interesting is that often the transition as someone is leaving office after two terms, the uh, months of transition, or, or even one term, um, can be high, can be, uh, can be specters of high drama. Um, the, uh, of course, Obama ended his term with the disgusting, um, uh, assent to the, uh, uh, to a UN, uh, hostile, a UN resolution hostile to Israel, just to give the middle finger to Bibi Netanyahu while he was walking out the door. Um, in 2000, in the year 2000, Bill Clinton tried to negotiate a second version of the Camp David Accords during his, in the, in the last weeks of his administration in 1992, um, uh, George H.W. Bush committed, uh, you know, basically went to war in Somalia um, uh, after his president, after he lost the, 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 the presidency. Um, this administration is different only in that Trump seems to have, all, all he wants to do is, throw people in departments so that he can fire so that he can have uh, some of his uh, most lunatic supporters in his administration uh, fire uh, people that they don't like and 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 give jobs to people for you know four weeks uh, before they actually have to depart you know sort of reordering and reshuffling of the deck chairs on the Pentagon Titanic uh, when uh, they're all out the door on the you know on the 20th of uh, of January. Uh, so I, you know, that's the interesting thing. It's one of the signs that his not being a conventional politician really is not being a conventional politician. Like he's not trying to hold on to the levers of power to affect change in the country or, you know, or, or show that he's still relevant or something. He's using them to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for himself, not even for the Georgia runoffs, but for himself and he is not attempting to establish a firm gr grounds on which he can say that he is working for a stronger republican future because he's getting in the way of the georgia runoffs that's what everybody is saying that you know this fight he's got people in georgia saying don't vote he's got linwood the lawyer and various other people saying don't vote in these elections in georgia in january because it's all rigged you know, and all you need is like 25,000 people who would have otherwise voted to stay home, possibly to turn the results of that, that election. So that's a it's sort of an interesting, another unprecedented factor uh, in, in the nature of this uh, weird period that we are living in. So I think we are going to uh, end it there. Uh, Eli Lake will join us tomorrow. Um, and for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Pothortz. Keep the candle burning.